In this episode of Boss Files, the ultimate entrepreneur, Brad Keywell. But this startup enthusiast and the man behind Groupon and the Chicago Ideas Festival is no Silicon Valley darling. He's Michigan born and bred, and it's fair to call him obsessed with his hometown of Chicago. Keywell is the founder of the $2 billion predictive analytics company, Uptake Technologies, dubbed the hottest startup of the year by Forbes in 2015. He's taking on the likes of General Electric in the Internet of Things space. So can he win? My candid conversation with Brad Keywell. Brad Keywell, thank you for being here. Pleasure to be here, Bobby. It's hard to describe all that you do. So we're just going to go through all of it because we have the beauty of time on this podcast. But let me begin with this. Well, you and I first met in New York at this speaking thing a while, maybe a year ago, and then I spoke at Chicago Ideas Festival. Yes, thank you for joining us. Of course, which is a great thing that you've started that we'll dig into. But here's how Fortune Magazine described you not long ago. Keywell has two seemingly opposing modes, borderline hyperactive and deeply reflective. Are they right? Fascinating. Uh, I think that my wife would likely agree with them. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty engaged when I'm engaged, and I think I appreciate the value of, of being mindfully disengaged at times. It, you, it, uh, it, it's fuel. You meditate. I do meditate. Daily? I meditate um, as often as I, as daily as I can, and I try to find rituals, if you will, or, or habits that can be sort of reminders of, of being present. So you're, you're, you're a serial entrepreneur. You've launched 14-plus companies, including some big-name ones like Uptake that you're, you're in, the, in the midst of right now. Of course, Groupon, your managing partner of Lightbank. You've got a lot going on. Groupon may be what you are most well-known for. What was that experience like? That's a, uh, in the, in, to answer a broad question, it was a, a tremendous learning experience. It was, I think, a culmination of a number of, of, of events or experiences or, uh, or, or activities of building companies that led to that. And I'm not sure that that company would have been what it was were it not for the experiences that Eric and I had mm-hmm. for uh, two decades before that. And reflecting now in the rearview mirror about that experience, it is yet another opportunity to build upon. And, and so I, I value the experience for myself highly, and, I, and I'm very proud of the company that we built. So when you say we, you're talking about Eric, who's been a partner of yours for, I don't know, since you were, what, in your 20s? Eric and I started working together when we were you know, 22. We've known each other since we were 11, so go back wow. a ways. And looking big picture, before we dig into Groupon, it's sort of the art of entrepreneurship and what works and what doesn't and when you've had successes and failures. I mean, you you started your first company, I read, at six years old. Sam Zell has become sort of a lifelong mentor for you. Where Did you always have this itch? I think so, but not necessarily business building, just more creating, I think. And the, when, I, when I talk to my parents about the first business that I started and then my habitual creation of businesses throughout my childhood and then deeply into college I was almost it was uh, it was like Woodstock for for entrepreneurship I think to borrow Buffett's Woodstock for <laughs> capitalism but my my uh, the thread throughout was creation and the creation yes absolutely had a has a profit motive mm-hmm. but there's something about the artistic or creative part of it that I think is just as important to me as 
as economics, otherwise there'd be a waning of activity or tenacity over time. So I'm, I'm about as engaged now as I've ever been. So that, that might be a, a way, that is the way I personally reflect on why am I so engaged? And I think it's because I love it. I love, I love building businesses. So for people listening who have probably already assumed at this time, if they haven't Googled your name yet or don't know you well, is that you're in Silicon Valley and that's your deal and you're another one of those guys, right? That's not true. You're a son of, you're a son of Detroit. You're from outside of Detroit. You are a Chicagoan. Am I saying that right? You, Chicagoan? I think, I think that's the correct uh, <laughs> dialect v version of Chicago. Through and through. Yes. You are immensely proud of where you're from. And you didn't leave. I mean, even with Groupon, you didn't go to the Valley. Yeah. Why? Um, it was never even a thought. And perhaps you could you could judge that one way or another. But the fact is, I grew up in Michigan. And I have a certain set of values. I know you grew up in Minnesota, Minneapolis. Don't you know? Exactly. I get to say that because I'm from there. <laughs> um, and I think that there's a way of thinking, a way of life. There's a There's a... A general sort of fabric of, of character that I, I'm used to, and I moved to Chicago because that's that's the big city. If you grew up in Michigan, and the, why why leave? And as a result, what we've now built are a number of businesses. We have about 8,000 people who are part of our ecosystem of businesses in Chicago. And so those who say that you need to be in a certain location, aka Silicon Valley, in order to build a great technology company, my response is. Really? I mean, said who? And the, the, the growth of the, of the technology uh, infrastructure, the technology world in Chicago is pretty exciting. And we've certainly been at the, you know, one of the, we're, one of the, we're, we're, in the, we're in the midst of it. We're in the heart of it. I mean, I guess the argument from some would be, well, you can't get enough talent or the right kind of talent. But you guys proved that wrong. Your latest venture, and we'll dig into this more in a moment, is Uptake. All, very focused on all about the Internet of Things with big clients like Caterpillar, et cetera. But in 2015, one year after you launched Uptake, Forbes named you guys the hottest startup of the year. They did. They did. Uh, look, I, again, the best way to disprove a, a, a thesis is with <laughs> evidence. So the evidence is that you can build great companies in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, you can attract phenomenal talent from a technology perspective. I mean, Uptake is in the world of predictive insight, obviously, which means great technologists, great cybersecurity uh, specialists, and phenomenal data scientists, all of which are plentiful in the Midwest. I think what's perhaps the necessity or the, the magic element for a great company that borrows or, or harnesses great talent is culture. Mm -hmm. And that might be something that you would say that Silicon Valley historically has had um, deep-rooted culture of yeah. risk-taking and innovation but I believe that what we've created in Chicago, especially with our companies, is a, a rich, deep culture of, uh, of, of, of consciousness, mm -hmm. of clarity, of risk-taking and the, um, the, the embracing of, of mindful failure mm -hmm. and the acceptance of, of, uh, of failure as long as you're doing your best work. And then the, the possibility of doing something really globally important. That's, and that, to me, is what... It all comes together with uptake. So let me push back on that a little bit, right? So I'm from Minnesota where they say Minnesota nice, right? And yet I also see, I think we're home to 19 or 20 Fortune 500 companies. I see how successful Minnesota is with, uh, you know, on the business side. Um, the risk-taking aspect, is it a misconception that maybe m Midwesterners are too nice? I don't know about nice, but I, I, I would say that the, the historical bias 
that I that I observed as a fellow Midwesterner is is that failing was a is was perceived as a negative, a very strong negative. You failed, therefore something's bad. And I think if you go to the West Coast at least a couple decades ago, the question if you failed was what what are you gonna do next? Yeah. I was pretty vocal with the media in Chicago about the self-fulfilling prophecy of punishing failure. If now failure for unethical or you know inappropriate reasons should be punished, but failure for um, as a result of trying your best mm -hmm. uh, is an inevitable part of, of innovation. And so the, the what's happening now is not um, that we're too nice or not too nice. What's happening now in my observation is there is a broader acceptance of, okay, you're taking a big risk yeah. and we appreciate that you might fail and if you do the hope set or unset is you'll do you'll try something else and that and that's also the same element of of culture that I try to promote within our companies which is do your best work and if you fail as long as it's your best let's keep trying you're going to we're going to figure it out let's talk about when you failed um you were 24 I believe you launched a children's athletic apparel business in Wisconsin we uh, you bought only, it from the Wisconsin. only business that we ever bought. We've everything we've done, we've literally created from scratch. So, so maybe that was it, buying yeah, something. The else. one one time we bought a business it was a small business, and we grew it significantly. Right, but then you realized pretty quickly. I had read that you had to to offshore 400 jobs. The, the company was saddled with debt. What are the lessons learned there that you took on to all these other successes? So many lessons. You know, in fact, I tell you that any overnight success is at least a decade in the making, and I would tell you at least more. So. One lesson is if your gut does not feel right, if there's anything about you, mm -hmm. full presence where you're not feeling um, that everything about you says yes, you probably should say no. And that's, that goes, mm -hmm. we talk about meditation and being fully present and conscious. You know, when we have, when we have all company meetings at, at Uptake, we literally take a minute to just become present, to be in the moment because most of us go through life in a way that we're, we're everything but present because we're obsessed with what we have to do later or we're thinking about what we did earlier uh, with guilt or some amount of, of drama and trying to be present is a big deal. That's a long way to say that my lesson, one of many about my 20s was if you don't feel right, if something doesn't feel like it's you, then you're better off reacting to that and adjusting mm -hmm. either you to it or it to you, but not ignoring it. And something about that experience um, didn't feel like it was drawing uh, from from my best. And ultimately, the transition from manufacturing and sourcing and inventory into technology, into creating solutions that made people money, made yeah. them better, um, helped people save money, helped people solve problems. Using technology plus data plus analytics to solve problems somehow became our calling. And if you look at the last 20 years now, 15, 20 years of creating businesses from scratch, not investing in businesses, not an incubator, but we create businesses from scratch. We incorporate the business and take risk and build it. The theme in the rearview mirror is technology, data, analytics equals opportunity. And that's been a pretty interesting formula over the years. So what do you think then has been in the last 20 years your biggest success? Do you, would you say it's uptake, what you're doing right now? Professional or personal? Professional. <laughs> um, I'd hope yeah, personally you'd say like being a dad family, and a exactly, good husband. Of course. <clears throat> um, professional, well, I would say there's three zones of my life. There's, there's personal, 
and their civic, philanthropic, engaging, you know, intellectual, I think that has a whole separate zone of, of focus. And then there's professional. The professional success has, my biggest success has been my ability to be open to learning, I think, because there'd be no uptake without, uh, without active learning. And, and a lot of the companies that Eric and I have started wouldn't exist unless we were actively learning from the prior experiences and, and then applying those to go. So the, the interest to keep going, the, the love of the activity, of the creative um, element of building something from scratch mm -hmm. is, is the biggest strength we have, I would say. And then our ability to learn explicit, what are we doing wrong? Yeah. Not what are we doing right so, is a better question that, we, that I ask. What are we doing wrong? Not what are we doing right? wise words. So let's just tell people who are listening who might not know what uptake is because it's not necessarily a consumer facing business. Um, a big client of yours uh, is Caterpillar, who's also invested. Um, when their big machines and the big cat machines you know, are about to break down, et cetera, this is predictive analytics. This helps companies save money and time by predicting because of all the surrounding data, the humidity in the air, the temperature, the how much it's being used and in, in what, in what uh, situation, when it might break down, so they can be on the front end of that, right? Great. In, in a variety of industries, another customer of ours is Berkshire Hathaway Energies. Our, our, our current clients are generally these, these broad, iconic uh, companies in industries like energy, construction, locomotive, aviation, and we take data from sensors that are on things. Things like trains, planes, uh, wind turbines. So data comes off of those things and it comes into the uptake platform and our data science results in that data being converted into insight. And the insight tells you things that result in being more productive. So getting more energy out of the wind turbine by running it better or by a person modifying the controls better, number one, so more productive, more reliable, meaning it won't break down. Um, you know if something is going wrong before it, ha before it breaks, and therefore you can modify or fix it before it shuts down. And the third thing is safety, which is an interesting use case. There really does not need to be, as long as you can predict and see what's happening while an asset is moving or while it's in operation, you should have very few um, disasters. You should have very few accidents. Uh, mm -hmm. And if there was a better calibration of the person controlling the asset, and the assets activity, you would have less crashes, for example. Uh, and, and the better uptake can, uh, can the, the more we, our tools are, are used across industries, the more safety becomes something that we can actively minimize uh, and hopefully be, um, you know, create unprecedented levels of safety in industries that historically have had safety issues. And big opportunity in terms of, I mean, I think, uh, you know, some of the latest estimates were, when you look at the Internet of Things market, a few years ago they were talking about a $19 trillion opportunity that has only gone up from there. But you're not without a competitor in this space, a really big competitor, a competitor by the name of GE. How are you going to win? It's, it's, it's like a, it's a it's a myth. It's it's there's mythology here because you're talking about an entrepreneurial organization. We're now 725 plus people after two and a half years. So that's pretty fast growth versus a significantly large, you know, multinational Fortune 50, Fortune 100 organization. 
I happen to believe that entrepreneurs are uniquely capable of solving problems. Entrepreneurs, aka entrepreneurial organizations, which means our, our at uptake, our core advantages are speed mm -hmm. and agility and quality of execution because we are eliminating or all but eliminating drama, uh, nonsensical politics and bureaucracy and artificial impediments. We're eliminating those things in our pursuit of the best solution. So finding the shortest distance between A and B is a skill that I believe is best executed by entrepreneurs. Uh, I also think that finding the most um, profitable, impactful solutions uh, are best done outside of a matrix. So matrix, a matrix organization is required to run a business as large as we're talking about. Uptake is singularly focused hmm. on solving problems and productivity, reliability, and safety, taking data off of machines. So, so if Jeff Immelt came to you and said, we want to, you know, are you for sale? We want to buy you. What do you say? I would say that uh, in the best of all ways, Uptake and GE are direct competitors. And so we are best off having, you know, a, a, a you know, bring your friends close and your enemies closer. And in that spirit, my perspective on conversations like that is always we should be great friends mm. and great competitors. So here's, uh, again, how this big profile on you uh, in Fortune ended. Sure, outracing the mighty GE with a billion dollar head start, no less, comes with some pretty long odds. But then it's not as if we're saying the Cubs will win the World Series or ha! anything. I, didn't, I forgot the ending of that article. You didn't read article. the last line that of the biggest great. profile piece on huh. you guys? I gotta revisit that. <laughs> what I think is, it's interesting to look at other spaces where we can, there's lots of examples where 10 people are better at building software than a thousand people. Hmm. And I would tell you, I believe strongly in the, you know, Jeff Bezos tell, calls it the two pizza rule or whatever you wanna call it. S bigger is not, is not better when it comes, it, bigger is often not better when it comes to technology today in terms of teams. Um, what's better is clarity of purpose, uh, singularity of focus, at least from a team level, mm -hmm. and optim optimization of output. And so we have an edge, Uptake has an edge in terms of our singular focus on creating these outcomes of productivity, reliability, and safety. So it's, look, I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years, building companies. Uptake is the most extraordinary journey I think I've ever been on, and, I, and the intellectual thrill of mm -hmm. being in the competitive zone that we're in and having an opportunity to create global impact in the most important industries on planet Earth, that is rare for an entrepreneur, and I would tell you, it's about as exciting as I've ever seen. But they also say that you have this insatiable need to start new businesses. And I've gotten that sense from you the, the few times that we've, we've talked. Do you think because of the thrill you just described and because of the legs that uptake and this opportunity have, you may stay longer with uptake than you have with other startups? You may not move on to the next thing quite so fast? But not just, I, I, it's not that I may stay, I will. And, and I think the better, for me at least, when I, when I once in a while somebody asks a question like that, and my answer is, if we were focused on 
so doing something quick, this would be about solving one problem in one industry, Pro solving you know the reliability and uptime problem in locomotives, for example. But quite to the contrary, the scale and scope of this opportunity is why this is a platform that cuts across many, many industries. And so the, you know, the intellectual and business challenge of solving these problems and creating out outcomes for productivity, reliability, safety, and things like aviation, wa our water supply, smart cities. I already mentioned um, locomotives. And see, it's the fact that within one company, you are, we are creating solutions for all major industries that makes this so thrilling, and that's part of why I say there's nothing like it. Well, before we move on, when you bring up water supply, I think of Flint, Michigan, obviously, because- Me too. You're, of course, you're that from there. Flint should not have happened. It should never have happened. I, if, I went, if, we if, covered it closely. I had a long interview with the governor of Michigan about all of this. I mean, how could you make a Flint not happen? I've, I've talked to Rick about this. I mean- Rick Snyder, the governor. Rick Snyder, the governor. If, if, if an uptake would have been if uptakes tools would have been um, monitoring the water supply and quality, then you would have known about the earliest indication and you would have solved it. Now, human beings have to solve a problem. So I suppose that bureaucracy might get in the way of actually solving it. Mm -hmm. But you would have known about it the minute something turned wrong. Imagine that the water quality, when it's excellent, is, 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 telling, is spitting out a computer code of, of one, all of a sudden it goes to zero. Mm -hmm. The minute that the quality falls below acceptable range, you know about it if you're monitoring the data that comes off of that quality and perhaps monitor. perhaps it wouldn't just be one paper report on one person's desk. Exactly. It, be... it, it takes anecdote out of the equation and it, it puts science and predictive insight into the equation. And that's why I say the use case of safety mm -hmm. is a very interesting result of the uptake sure. platform. I keep thinking of airlines when I keep think of safety. Do you guys work with any airlines right now? We do. We do. Can you we, tell us who? We have not talked about publicly who our partners are in the aviation space, but there too, there's oper there's no reason, for example, that you should get to a gate and the plane not be ready to go. That's a logistics issue, and in fact, if when the plane was in the air, it was fundamentally giving the people on the ground a signal saying, "Here's what we need. Here are the parts we need when we land." To tweak all the problems, then mm -hmm. you'd have a logistic optimization on the ground and you'd be back up in the air again. It's so interesting how many things would be different if we were listening to the machines that were the components of our world. And finally, you have technology and sensor um, capability to listen to everything. So everything around us is talking and we can actually listen and predict what might happen. Let's talk about Groupon, okay? So when Andrew Mason was, what, 27 years old? He came to you guys, and you loved this idea. And it blew up. I mean, I'll never forget that image of them ringing the bell uh, you know, at the, at the NASDAQ when they went public. What's the lesson in Groupon? Because fast forward, Google offers an, um, a reported $5.75 billion to buy the company. You guys turn it down. What's the lesson here in Groupon? It offers uh, so many lessons. Well, first of all, the the idea that Andrew that 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 Andrew came um, came to us with was was not Groupon. It was called the Point. Okay. And and one lesson is being active in our in our iteration and our in our trying businesses because ultimately the first business didn't work, and then we tried applying the theory of that business to a group discount. That's number one. Number two is by 
we built a business called, Eric and I built a business called Echo Global Logistics, which before Groupon was pretty crazy growth. It was you know, me at a desk to a thousand people in, in three years. That experience of building Echo was a direct asset in the growth, in the operational growth of Groupon. So what, another lesson is having the value of your experience and figuring out a bigger and more impactful application of what you've been through and maybe therefore refining it over time. There are lots of lessons about the execution of Groupon. I mean, one for me that I'm living out right now at, at Uptake is the value of culture cannot be, there's no way to overstate how important culture is at a company. Um, and without commenting on necessarily the specifics of, uh, of the culture of, of, you know, the, that Andrew created, ultimately there's gotta be one CEO. And so while Eric and, and Andrew and I were all founders, Andrew was a CEO, and the CEO sets the culture, which I believe strongly. Um, and so w one of my learnings that I'm now executing at, at Uptake is that the culture at Uptake is about clarity, it's about um, candor, it's about curiosity, and it's about commitments. So commitments to things like, um, like, like not gossiping about each other, directly dealing with each other if there's an issue, like acknowledging each other's uh, strengths and weaknesses as a way to learn from each other. And all of these elements where you're mindfully setting the stage so that when there is stress in the system, there are some core principles to, re to revert back to. You didn't see that enough at, at Groupon, it's is that fair to say? Yeah, there, it's something that could have been um, executed better. I was not in the, in the seat. So the person in the seat of a mm -hmm. CEO, that's the job, mm -hmm. uh, among other jobs. But that person sets the culture. So what I'm doing with, at Uptake is setting a culture that I think is a strong backbone that will make us better equipped at every stage of, of, of growth and stress and, 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 you know, and, and opportunity. So there's so many lessons. We get, there's yeah. lessons on every step of the way. And those lessons matter most when times get really hard. I mean, you guys, Uptake, are flying high. I'd call you a, 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 a you know, a, a a darling of Silicon Valley, but you're not Silicon Valley, a darling of Chicago, I suppose. You've got this $2 billion valuation. Things are good. What's the long-term, big, big Berkshire Hathaway energy deal, $2 billion valuation, what's the long-term play here? Public? This is really cliche, but it's not about the public or, or not public. To me, the long-term play is execution. How well can we execute? You mentioned that our, our competitors are these huge companies. Yeah. Our job is to build something uniquely excellent. And that uniquely excellent platform, that technology platform, delivers solutions that make money. So here's the framework of Uptake. This is one of the first businesses in the technology space that directly delivers profit or savings, directly. You can actually calibrate when, we, when you turn on Uptake how much money you make or how much money you save. And so our job, as I often talk about inside Uptake, is execution excellently. Let's be great at what we do. And the better we are at what we do, the more permanent, the more, uh, we're, we're literally creating a business that should be, that should matter for decades mm. and decades and decades and get better with each decade. That's pretty unique that an entrepreneur has an opportunity to build something that can be that significant and that mm -hmm. impactful to global industries. You just don't see that very often. You've built Chicago Ideas Festival, which is a gathering of 30,000, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how many speaking engagements there were just the day that I was there, yeah, right? Yeah, huge. What's the idea behind that? Obviously, 
you bring in people from around the world, but what's your goal with Chicago Ideas Festival about putting your city even more on the map? The, the goal when it was, when I created it, when I started it, the goal was not necessarily about Chicago, hmm. although it was. Um, but the primary goal was to sort of satiate my appetite for intellectual recreation or curiosity and just an acknowledgement that we didn't have what I thought we needed in the Midwest, Chicago, Midwest. So I, I went, I go, you know, I go to the TED conference and I go to the Aspen Ideas Festival. They're far away. I love them. They're very expensive. Very exclusive. And very exclusive. And my idea was simply, what if we had something of that quality, maybe even better at times, and what if it was free? Yeah. And ultimately, what, what came out of that was, well, free is a little extreme because it sends a weird signal. But what if it's $15 to attend versus $8,000 for other conferences? Yeah. And what if we had just as good quality and it was accessible to everyone? And ultimately, what's come out of that idea is a community. Mm -hmm. So within the community of the Midwest in Chicago is a community called Chicago Ideas. Mm -hmm. And it's not just 35,000 people during that week, it's year-round engagement of diverse groups that otherwise would never have any connective tissue with each, with each other, and we're bringing them together actively. So I think the service that we're providing, just because it's the right thing to do and because it's thrilling intellectually, the service is connecting people that would otherwise not be connected mm -hmm. and letting things happen from that from those connections which it's wild it's phenomenal what happens when people who should be connected are connected, are connected. yeah more specifically why does chicago need this right now i mean as you i don't have to tell you about the headlines that dominate, right? The national news media, when it comes to Chicago, it is many times about the murder rate, and it is many times about violent crime. Why does Chicago uniquely need this right now? And just speak to the bigger challenges that your city's facing. The time is always right for great ideas, but now more than ever, the time is right in, in the heartland, if you will, of our country for great ideas to meet age-old, you know, uh, sort of uh, core problems that are part of the, the, don't, the, the downtown, the, the urban environments across the country. We've got the two coasts yeah. that are known for innovation, and then you've got a massive area between the two coasts, and I would argue that Chicago is one of the centers of innovation between the coasts, mm -hmm. if not the center of innovation. And so we have an opportunity to be uniquely influential around solutions. Solutions, and so well, yes, there are issues around. I mean, I'm, I'm well, not in politics, but a lot of this comes but, out of employment too. I mean, a lot of what well, you need solutions for are job opportunities. Here's, I mean, Arnie for Duncan. You. Arnie Duncan has a great idea. And Former Education Secretary. Yeah, Arnie was a, the Secretary of Education under under President Obama. Pretty good basketball player. Pretty good basketball player, and a and a good friend of of the president's. And he comes back to Chicago. His idea is, what if we created opportunities for people who are um, who don't have many choices? to actually have a choice called working and making more money working than they would with other not so legal uh, options. And when I, when I talked to Arnie about it, I was one of the first ones to raise my hand and say, I'm in. Let's, let's bring Echo Global Logistics mm -hmm. as the first company to be part of, the, of Arnie's initiative to create jobs as a way to, to address some of these issues around violence and, uh, and, and gangs and that. Look, there's no one magic solution, but I think that ideas that are put into action yep. are the beginning of the solution. And I'm increasingly convinced that the private sector has a bigger and bigger role here. Um, you're talking about the private sector. I mean, I think the private sector is the 
is an innovation. What we can do is force, I think that the public sector in its magnificence of, of action don't, doesn't take risk the way that, that entrepreneurs or the private sector can. The philanthropic side of, of my life, my wife and I focus on finding innovators, finding disruptive leaders in philanthropy, in um, NGO work, and using that as the beginning of you know, helping them be disruptors. And I just think that people, disruptive leaders, are at the core of change, and it's social entrepreneurs. Is the private sector going to solve the crisis in Chicago right now, the youth unemployment crisis, um, the, the murder rate? Are, are private companies going to be a big part of that by creating opportunity? We could be part of it. Okay. We could be part of it. And, and, but I think it's going to require us stepping up and, uh, and, and asserting ourselves as part of it. And look, I'm, not, I'm a tiny, tiny part of, of that conversation. But my my part is saying to is saying when I hear about a good idea like Arnie's, I say, let's get involved. So the Trump administration, um, you're operating a big business under the Trump administration. You know, today as we sit down, he's meeting with with uh, CEOs at the White House. What is the number one thing you'd like to see uh, from the Trump administration? Well, I, I think what what uh, what Jared is working on in terms of innovation, in terms of a more efficient government where the quid pro quo we pay taxes to the government and they provide services and regulate appropriately looking at that activity through a lens of innovation and understanding identifying opportunities where technology and and maybe more enlightened approaches can do maybe more with less maybe solve bigger problems with different approaches that is very interesting to me the focus on innovation as a part of our government not and and, and president obama also had great activity around technology being inserted into the business of government. Mm -hmm. So I, I, that, that part of, of what's happening um, with our government has been very heartening, I guess. What about tax overhaul? I mean, we haven't seen it since the mid-1980s. It's really hard to do. This administration has promised it. They promised to bring down you know, corporate tax rates a lot, which I assume you wouldn't argue with. But do you buy that it's going to happen? And is it going to happen soon like they've promised? I've successfully kept, kept politics out of my philanthropy and my, my, and Chicago Ideas, for example, is not about a position or a, or a agenda. It's about ideas. So I'm not really one to talk publicly so about see. my, yeah. I, I think that, look, I went to law, I'm a lawyer by training and I didn't practice law for one minute. I'm proud of that record, but I will say that my education at Michigan Law School led me to understand the power of regulations and the power of public policy mm. to change human behavior. There's a big conversation for another day about, about the, the, the behavioral economic outcome of some of these policies and how we as mm. human beings direct our lives based upon what, what, our, what our elected leaders do. So that, that it's, to me, it's an interesting, it's a very complex conversation that is pretty exciting if you handle the opportunity that power gives you uh, correctly. Before we wrap up, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you someone who is in this space so deeply when it comes to VC funding of startups. Um, Women-run startups have such a hard time raising money, even though all the studies show that companies that have more women at the top or diverse at the top perform better financially. I mean, Last year, 2016, women-led startups made just 
made up just 5% of all VC deals. It's, it's not right. Why is this? Why? Uh, you know, look, I'm a father of two daughters who are 17 and 18, and I, and, and I, I the why is, I'm just another, I, I'm mindful of not responding to, that, to, your, to the conversation with a cliche. All I can tell you is I'm in the game, and, and my two cents on the conversation is what can we do? Uh, in, in a good way, I, I say to people that are part of my team, what, let's do everything we can do to be part of the solution. Well, you, I what, mean, Light like, Bank, you guys invest in companies. We, so. Well, so we invest in companies, and there's no, you know, there's a diverse, we've invested in 108 companies, um, Eric and I, through Light Bank. And, and so our track record is we're geographically diverse, we are gender, you know, there, there's, there's diversity. But beyond that, it's what can we, in a position to do something, what can we do? to be part of solutions across the spectrum, meaning uh, girls who code, yep. uh, meaning um, uh, inclusion and diversity in terms of teaching code to people that are beyond college. Um, there's, there's all kinds of opportunity. Look at it this way. Uptake is this unique creation of technologists, data scientists, uh, uh, disruptors, meet huge companies that, that are running the infrastructure of the world. So it's two polar opposite groups coming together. Cultural challenge meets big outcome. If we can have that same philosophy of let's take people that are in the game and actively get involved with those who would, would benefit us and themselves. Sh should you put in place mandates, right? I mean, I think this is what the panel that I moderated at Chicago Ideas was about, women and VC funding and women-led startups. Should you know your company, another big investor, say we are going to make sure that our teams bring in X amount of women-led companies, so they're at least in front of us. Yes. Okay. So yes, I'm a strong believer in in over-indexing for opportunity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Doesn't mean there's like a quota of number of companies you invest in in certain gender or ethnic groups, but I believe that anything you do to over-index on on um, creating opportunities is a good thing. And I go one step further. I think it's mentorship that really makes a difference. I was a beneficiary of a mentor for 30 years, Sam Zell. I appreciate how valuable it is to have a mentor to guide you, not just with a macro opportunity to present your business plan, but the micro of how to navigate the system. How to, it's, it's in the details that, okay. that things start to change. So my, my advocacy is not just um, uptake and light bank and other parts of our world to create opportunity, but let's all mentor people who would benefit from our mentorship. And when I say let's all, I mean everybody in our organizations hopefully is equipped and has the patience and, and, uh, and mindfulness to be mentors to others. That's where change starts to happen and bridges start to be built. Before I let you go, I have a feeling that retirement is not in your vocabulary. But if it were, what would you do? I don't think it is. And my favorite, my there's two great, one story that's great, I mean, I'm, I'm often with Sam Zell, and, and I recently asked him, he's 75, and I asked him about what drives him, and, and his answer was, this is, this, it's not just what drives me, this is who I am. I, I am an entrepreneur, I am a risk taker actively. And so if I was not actively taking risk and, and testing my own limits, what would I do? And then on a personal level, my wife and I were taking a walk recently, and literally she said, what would, we, what would you do if, if you retired? And I said, after thinking, I said, I think I'd start a business. <laughs> and she laughed, and now she's repeated that story a number of times, but I meant it. It would be a small business, 
I have a business about about the coolest lemonade stand in the world. There you go. So that would be my business. There you go. Frankie, well, thank you very much. Good luck. Poppy, thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Boss Files. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.